You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with David Sachs, who is the author of a number of books. I think your first book was called Save the Deli. Okay. And I have to find out whether or not you have, in fact, single-handedly saved the deli since the publication of that book. Also a book called Tastemakers, which is kind of about, I guess, craft, particularly food kind of craft space. And then Revenge of the Analog, Soul of an Entrepreneur. And this book here, The Future is Analog, which is, I guess, a sequel to Revenge of the Analog. But Revenge of the Analog was published in 2016. And some little thing intervened called the COVID pandemic, which I think made the publication of this book a little bit more urgent. Okay. And you're kind of describing during those years of the pandemic, how important it was, how you really wanted to double down on the points made in revenge of the analog. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me, Greg. So I think that the title of the book is provocative, but I think it's a little bit misleading because, you know, the message in the book is that digital and analog are not substitutes, but in a way they're complements, right? I mean, you're not telling the world that they need to move back into the caves or, you know, become the Amish. I think you said at some point, like, like, you know, the goal is not to become like the Amish people and and get rid of electricity and so forth. I mean, if I could build a barn of that quality and churn the butter, you know. There's certain certain things that are good about it. It does get to your Berkeley lifestyle choice of like. That's right. You know, move to Brooklyn and make pickles. Artisanal hay baling. Exactly. But I think your point is that here, this is a tool. It's a very powerful set of tools. But, you know, we have to make sure that they work for us and that we don't really work for them. So is it really about kind of compliments versus substitutes? Yeah, I think the language of the title, it's provocative. It gets attention. It sells books. It's sizzle. But it is very much a countervailing argument against the sort of de facto narrative that the future is digital. And I think that's what this book came out of. This book came out of having written the previous book, Revenge of Analog, which is really about sort of objects and ideas that were resurgent, non-digital sort of things like bookstores and paper notebooks and you know vinyl records and film and so forth that, that had been growing. And I chronicled it. I would always get these you know, in interviews or conferences I was speaking at or people writing to me, well, we know the future is digital. Well, the future has to be digital. You know, the the future is definitely digital. Like it was just this assumption that it's this truth. It's our destiny. And anything that questions that is obviously wrong or just foolish because the future is digital. Look what happened to us in the past, you know, 50 years. It's inevitable that everything's going to be digital. And that assumption has really been at the core of like, government policy, business, education, academia, you name it, right? So many different future-focused decisions are based upon that very simplistic assumption that digital technology in whatever form it is, is going to be the inevitable superior version of whatever it is we're doing, whether that's learning, working, eating, shopping, praying, whatnot, right? And this was something that I would talk about and I would debate and and so forth. And then here we go, March 2020. And suddenly the future is digital. It's all we have, right? We're sitting at home in our sweatpants, working from home, learning from home, 
educating, trying to get our children educated from home, being entertained from home, socializing with friends from home, you know, attending Passover dinner or church service or a funeral from home, doing all the things, you know, exercising, biking in our house to a screen, right? And it was like, well, this is it. The prophecy hath been fulfilled of this digital future, at least for a period of a couple months for some people and longer for others. So what did we learn? What did we learn about that, right? Because that was sort of the inevitability of where we were heading. I mean, there are people like the great tech writer and thinker, Kevin Kelly, not too far from you, who wrote a book called The Inevitable, which is like, these are the technologies that are inevitably going to be dominating us. And now this, you know, I wrote the book pre-chat GPT. Now it's all about the same conversation about AI. It's inevitable that all jobs will be done by AI and everything, you know. And I think that very binary thinking is inherent in the conversations around digital technology, because digital is a very binary thing. It's a one and a zero, it's an Apple or a Samsung, right? And so the title, the idea of the book is really saying, we had this wild experience of living through this thing where aside from some lucky people in New Zealand for a couple of months, like everyone in the world was forced into some version of this digital future, right? They were shopping online, they were learning online, they were going to school, they were you know doing an exercise class, they were having drinks with friends, like Zoom cocktails. What did we learn from that as we're sort of reflecting on the future and the use of technology in it? And so that is what the future is analog is, is this declaration that, you know, not to spoil things, but it's like the future is not entirely digital. Well, we learned that it sucked. It sucked. Yeah. But it's certainly not, you know, entirely analog too. It's not like take your phones, throw them in the river and, or don't throw them in the river because you pollute the river, but like recycle them. You know, no one's calling for that, let alone myself. Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between kind of front end and back end. I mean, I teach a course called Digital Transformation. And the message of that class is that, you know, every company has to be a software company to some degree. And I teach these classes on digital transformation. But then here I am, right? My house is stuffed with books, right? And, you know, I'm always going to concerts and to the theater and so forth. And people are like, well, how is that possible, right? You know, you're Mr. Digital and here you are with all your paper. I think I'm the only person in the city of Berkeley, who gets the paper copy of the Financial Times, and they keep pressuring me, <laughs> like they keep ratcheting up the rates and trying to force me into the app. I mean, Berkeley is not exactly the FT demographic, but that's a whole other story. That's well, okay, that may be the only reason. Yeah, maybe nobody gets the digital copy either. But it seems like these things are not necessarily in conflict. I was invited to give a talk to this conference on this like food tech conference, and it seemed to me that. These two trends, one is towards tech and then one is towards, you know, more organic and farmers markets and stuff. They're, in other words, the farmers can essentially make their small scale production more commercially viable if they can disseminate information more easily about, you know, where they're going to be. And people can search online and figure out like, oh, here's where the farmer's market is and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, is it really about the, I mean, because you emphasize it's about the experience of your daily life and how if the digitization of that is what is so destructive to your subjective well-being. Yeah, I, I think it is really this question of a struggle, and I don't mean a battle, but just a wrestling of balance in a way and a continual learning of what is that right balance for each individual, for each family, for each household, for each organization, for each society of digital technology and the sort of non-digital equivalent, right? And the pandemic gave us this 
incredible, hopefully once in a lifetime or once in history, chance of like, here's all of it. Here you go. All digital, right? You know, your endless time. You like, you love digital. Here you go. This is it. You love watching Netflix at home in your sweatpants. That's all you can do for two months, three months, a year, whatever. Where all of us viscerally all of a sudden understood what parts of it worked for us and what parts of it don't. And so some people are like, this is great. I never want to go into an office again. And they still remain at home, right? I don't think there's a lot of people out there who are like, my kid is so happy learning at home from an iPad. I am never sending them back to school. There's a minority of people for whom that still resonates, but 99% of people around the world, regardless of the type of school they're in or the age of their kids or whatever, is like, get them back to a classroom. This is bad on every single level, right? And then there's the other areas where it's mixed, you know, shopping. Like you go to a grocery store as I did yesterday to get groceries for the fifth time this week. And they're still full. They're packed with people squeezing melons and picking up chicken and doing these things. And yet, you know, I see the grocery delivery vans driving around my neighborhood as well, right? The record stores, the bookstores, the clothing stores, like there's still lots of people in them on a given day or a given weekend. And yet the Amazon trucks still are clogging up my street on a daily basis. It's not this either or. And I think this balance is discovering where digital makes our lives better, where it increases our efficiency, whether it's economic efficiency or whether it's time, whether it gives us an experience that we can't necessarily have. Like my son has discovered Nintendo. My brother-in-law has a Nintendo Switch. My son's six years old. He's, you know, he's really into Super Mario Brothers. We broke up my old Super Nintendo. He was like amazed by that. Loves it. But he's also really gotten into chess and loves playing chess, right? And also loves playing in the playground and loves playing Frisbee and loves playing catch and doing all the things that kids like. The great nothing burger of tech innovation of the past three years is the metaverse, the Facebook metaverse, right? Billions of dollars that could have gone into climate technology or God knows what squandered on like headsets and stupid little avatars that nobody used. And the amount of companies and things that are like, what's our metaverse strategy? We're all in on the metaverse. You know, we're going to be a metaverse first brand, blah, 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 blah. This is the future. And nobody used it. Now it's all just like quietly dying. And that's because it was this literally narrow version of like, this is the best future we have is walking around with sitting there with screens on our strapped to our eyes. That doesn't reflect the reality of human existence, which we learned about in the pandemic. But look, I think there's a positive claim and a normative claim, right? And the normative claim is that the analog world has a lot of things that simply cannot be replaced with digital. And therefore, you will be perhaps more productive, perhaps happier, perhaps more fulfilled and more engaged if you stick with the analog world in these different domains. But then there's the positive claim, which is that people are not going to buy into this vision and are not going to do this stuff. Now, you could have the one be true without the other one being true, right? You could say digital synagogue sucks, and yet people might wind up doing it simply because it's easier or because the companies that are kind of selling them this are really good at getting them addicted or manipulating them in this way. Addicted to digital synagogue. (laughs) A cautionary after yeshiva school special. Probably not the best example, but I mean, you're making both claims though. You're saying that because it's inferior, because the metaverse is a stupid idea, people aren't going to do it. But you could imagine a world where they do it, even though it sucks, right? If it becomes the standard, right? If it becomes the thing that everyone 
does because they have to do it just becomes the sort of de facto thing like cashless payment, right? Where there are times when cash is easier, there are times when cash is more cumbersome and yet the cashless payment has issues of its own, but it becomes quickly the de facto standard as more and more places move to it for ease or convenience or because they're paying fees that they built in the infrastructure or whatever. I think the thing we're, we're getting at here is like a lot of what someone said today, like just mediocre crap. You know, it's like, wow, all the LinkedIn posts are now made by AI. You can't tell the difference because it's all just kind of like the same rephrasing of like Simon Sinek quotes. And I think we love absolute answers. We love, especially when it comes to anything around the future, what's going to happen tomorrow? Are we going to be the dominant force or are we going to be, you know, is it going to be sunny or is it going to be rainy? And it's like, well, it could be cloudy with the mix of some showers. And I think it's hard. It's hard for us to think about that. You're like, well, what do I wear? What do I bring? I'm supposed to have a picnic. How do I do that? Like, is it raining or is it sunny? I need to know. And I think, and then I think that the promise of digital that people bought into is like, it's going to be sunny. Don't you worry. It's going to be sunny. We, it's always sunny in the metaverse. We guarantee it's going to be this. We guarantee that you know exactly what you get when you get a Peloton class. You know, you know exactly like what your day is going to look like, your, where your bike can be, who you're sitting next to, you have that sort of thing. But what I think we realized during the experience of the pandemic was all the things that we missed about that, that how actually very narrow that field of vision is. As I look at a image of myself of like two inches by one and a half inch speaking on the screen, and that's, you know, blow up the screen, but like, this is what you get. Yeah, but I guess the question is, you know, in economics, we talk about positive versus negative feedback. As you do more and more digital, you start craving more and more of the non-digital. But as people do more and more digital, the viability of the analog kind of goes away, right? So as more and more people switch to the digital New York Times, the price that I have to pay to support this delivery guy gets higher and higher. And sooner or later, I'm just going to have to flip, right? And if you want to go to the theater and there's nobody there, then, you know, the tickets get too expensive and they go out of business, right? So you want to send your kids out to play in the field. And if all the other kids are on Roblox, then, you know, they, they can't play by themselves. So to what extent are we kind of being coerced into digital ways of interaction, even though we might all prefer not to? It's true that there is this idea, right? They, all these companies or platforms want that sort of network effect to achieve some sort of economy scale to sort of break through. And again, if things become this de facto standard, such as email, then like your fax machine withers, let alone your delivery telegram person. I think there are limits to it though, right? There are limits to where it is. And we smashed up against those limits. And I think we've all come to understand them a lot more. So yeah, if a bunch of the kids in the neighborhood are going to be playing video games, there won't be as many kids at the park. But I think most of the kids realize like there's a limit to how many video games they want to play. And if you go to any park anywhere in the world, it's going to be filled with kids. I think even the back to work thing, you're seeing even companies like Shopify, the Canadian e-commerce company, that's their headquarters was like around the corner from here. Many of the parents in my school worked there and they were the first to be like, we are remote first, remote only. This is the future. This is the future. And then the company has had a real hard time retaining people, maintaining its culture, maintaining motivation. Now they're like, we're doing like, you know, head count, like something that's like not back to the office, but like, you know, oh, there's a space here. It has walls and an elevator and lights and there's desks. It's not an office. We're not bringing it back to the office. But that notion of limitations 
is one that I think that comes up against, again, that idea of the network effect. And I think in certain areas, it's going to be that digital control of a certain technology just makes so much sense. So the economies of scale are there so much, or it's so much more efficient that it becomes the de facto standard. But I think we lose sight of the fact that the world is analog. The world is not digital, right? The planet that we're on, currently on fire, depending where you are, is this physical tactile thing. That's the core of what analog is. And the computers, the ones and zeros play a big role in certain parts of it. But even in the economy, the number of jobs that are only able to be done on a computer is still a relatively decent, but minority size, right? You still need people to drive the things. You still need people to lift the things. You still need people to go out and plant the fields and round up the cattle and cook the burgers. And oh yes, AI and robots, it's going to do all this. And it's going to be like Star Trek. And you're just going to just be floating around on these little tubes or whatever. And so there are just hard limitations, right? The body needs to get out. Like there's the, those hard limitations that were having us crawling up the walls in April of 2020 of like, I can't sit through another Zoom. Like, I can't do another thing. I need to get outside. Those limitations still exist. And so any potential of that switch to digital is the sort of default mode of living or of, of a certain type of business or certain type of activity is going to come up against those hard limits. You see it in school, you see it in teaching, you see it in various parts of the working world. Now, some people would say that given your age, I think you're at the tail end of Gen X, right? I just did a couple of podcasts on generations. They said that, you know, Gen X is the last generation that still remembers a world that was pre-internet. So, I mean, do you think that still having that memory of a pre-internet world gives you a perspective that maybe the people younger than yourself have to kind of learn the, the hard way? I think the generational generationalizing is this great lazy misstep that we always make around technology. Millennials aren't going to want to go out because millennials like experiences and look at the number of, you know, we ad firm did a survey and 17 out of 20 millennials like Spotify. Therefore, the record industry is dead. You know, like, you know, who's driving the growth and interest in all things analog? It's younger people people who've grown up with this technology, right? Whether you look at the sales of vinyl records, whether you look at like pinball resurgence, whether you look at whatever it is, book sales, you know, all this sort of stuff. It's not people of my generation or your generation. It's those younger than us. And why is it? Why does my 10-year-old daughter love taking photos on an Instax camera? It's like, because she's grown up her whole life taking photos on this stupid thing. And there's nothing new about it. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing magic about it. Whereas like for a grandparent, using an iPad is still like... Ooh, right? But for a kid, it's like, oh yeah, this thing, yeah, okay, fine. I've seen it, but like, wow, the film comes out of the camera. And I think there's been so much oversubscribed to this notion of generational preference of this idea of default that it discounts the analog reality and needs of those people in that, these individuals in that generation, which is like, People who are, you know, 15 years old still have bodies and those bodies still need to like move in space. They still enjoy sunshine. They still benefit more from learning in a social group with other people than learning on a flat screen. And I think that was a huge assumption, right? It's like, well, the teens and the kids with their Minecraft and their Fortnite are going to love 
this online education. And they were the first to be like, where are my friends? This sucks. This is terrible. I mentored students at my old university in McGill in Montreal, and I did it for a couple of years during the pandemic. And I felt most sorry for them because what is the university experience, whether you're Berkeley or McGill or wherever, right? The university experience is not like the thing that your professor says. Sorry, Greg. It's sitting next to your friend while the professor says that thing and talking about it after and then going out for a drink or playing Frisbee or going to a party later or living with other people or learning how to cook or, you know, all these grand human experiences. That doesn't change because of when someone is born. That's as true now as it was years ago. And that doesn't mean that those people won't be like on their phone a lot, but it doesn't devalue the other thing. Well, I mean, I do think, however, that there have been some trends that are difficult to reverse. So for instance, I am back at teaching in the classroom, thank God for the last couple of years, but the attendance rate is much lower than it was before the pandemic, right? And I think, you know, well, it's not uncommon to have 40% of the class missing from all of the classes in an MBA program. And this was just, no one would ever think about this. And I have to get up and explain to the students that not only is it good for them, but it's sort of an obligation on their part for their classmates because, you know, you learn from your classmates. Especially in MBA, it's all group work, right? Right. And then my friends who go to church, they say that church attendance is down. You go to the symphony and there's just empty seats everywhere. Even our outdoor Shakespeare theater here had to cancel their season, even though it was only like three or four years ago where you couldn't even get tickets to go into this. So, I mean, we thought that everybody would clamor to rush back and thank God I can go back to the theater. But in many places, we, we haven't seen that. It depends. I mean, you know, I think there's a bias of where it is in the thing, right? Maybe the symphony in Berkeley or in Oakland is quiet or San Francisco symphony is. And maybe that's a feature of like economics and the hollowing out of the city core or some other thing. It can be habit too, right? People would just subscribe and then they, there's, you know. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. You know, I'm going to the Blue Jays game tonight. I don't even like baseball. I'm going with my book club. It's sold out and they're doing terrible, right? Yeah. San Francisco Giants have seen a huge drop off in attendance. So, you know, who knows, right? Like I've, I've gone to a couple of rock concerts recently and like some of them had 60% and some of them were completely sold out and absolutely packed. And my daughter's going to an Ed Sheeran concert in a few weeks for her birthday gift. And like, I tried to get a ticket for my son and I, and they were $300 each for the cheapest seats. So... I think there's a bias we could see of like, I went to this place and no one was there. And it's like, well, maybe Mahler doesn't draw as much as Beethoven. Or maybe the policies of Berkeley to allow, I don't, do they film your classes? Are you allowed to stream them at home? No, we intentionally stopped filming it because it was giving people an excuse. Okay. And they just don't show up. Yeah. It, and they get marked as absent and like it affects their marks. Well, we've, we've had to change our policy because we didn't used to have a, a policy of attendance. And now it's like. And I think that a lot of that is this behavioral thing, right? It's the going back to work where people are like, I know I prefer it, but oh, it sucks. So I'm just not going to go in. There was recently a big strike of federal workers here in Canada. And it was about new contract and benefits and so forth. But there was a big part and the workers were like, we cannot be forced back to the office. We're going to stand by our right to work from home. They were like one of the last sectors. And the government's like, nope, non-negotiable. Here's your salary. Here's your benefits. Great. Non-negotiable. We are not doing that. And why is that? It's like, if you're saying, oh, this is it, this is the way you're sort of doing it. You are normalizing a certain type of behavior, which when you look at it is maybe not the healthiest behavior. 
There are advantages. There are advantages that might address some sort of economic disparity of the students who live close to campus and the students who come in from other parts of the Bay or, or whatever. There are advantages for people with different bodily abilities and restrictions and access and health and all these sorts of concerns. But like, is the solution that everybody goes back online? No, right? And so there are times when you have to draw a hard line. You know, what you're seeing with social media now with the Surgeon General in the United States, different states banning social media platforms, like there's some extremism to it, but it's like, yeah, we realize that actually you do have to be proactive in sometimes making that digital future the standard. And I, I was at the barber today. Can't do that online. <laughs> Can't stream a haircut, no, unfortunately. No. And having my wife cut mine during the pandemic for a few months was not a, not a great result. But, you know, I was there in the chair and I was like, oh my God, an ashtray. And it's like, remember when people smoked everywhere? I was telling my kids about this. I'm like, People used to smoke cigarettes in- On the plane. Airplanes, right? I remember in the study hall, in the library. Yeah. In the teacher's lounge at schools. Like you walk by the teacher's lounge in elementary school, it'd just be like smoke pouring out, right? In restaurants. And that's a recent thing that we changed. And when people are like, whoa, no, you can't do that. And it was like, no, there need to be limits. This, I hope, is the thing that we take away from the pandemic because we clearly fucked up the rest. <laughs> A next pandemic comes where I think we're going to be even, even worse shape than before. But the thing I hope we take away from it is like, there are limits. There are limits and limits are necessary. And plunging forward into the newest technology because it's possible and reorienting our lives around it because that's something that seems attractive or maybe there's an economic advantage or it's something that someone can sell is not something that we should do lightly. We need to sort of A-B test it in a way and say, hey, is, is our life, our family, our household, our company, our organization, our society better with this? Did it improve it or does it not? Where does it improve it? Where does it make it worse? How do we, again, readjust that balance? Because technology is not going anywhere. And, you know, advances in AI and blah, blah, blah is going to create all sorts of new software, hardware, opportunities, processes. But the other thing that's not going anywhere is the analog reality of we are biological creatures living on this earth. And despite people's fantasies of the singularity or transhumanism or any of these other sort of, you know, Palo Alto, libertarian, techno-religious cult kind of things, we still have bodies and those bodies have needs. And those needs are as simple as be, having to move those bodies beyond the confines of, of the walls of where we live. And there can be as complicated as the unseen and hard to quantify advantages of learning in person with other people or the value of sort of social connections that we get even in a grocery store when we talk for three seconds to the person at the checkout, right? what are those things? And I think because they're harder to quantify and they might have a cost to them, we kind of discounted them for a while. But I think we can look back in the experience of the pandemic. It's like, hey, you know what? We didn't love all being at home. We didn't love all ordering everything online. We needed to get out. We needed to do those things. Why is that? And how do we look at that when the next technology comes around and promises to deliver us into some new age of efficiency and perfection? Well, I mean, it seems like there's two different themes in the book. One is physical interaction with the world, right? The non-human world. And then the second is 
interacting with other humans. So even when we think about the office, I mean, for me, going to the office or going to a, a library or going to a different physical location to work has always been important to me. And so during the pandemic, I would go to my office most days and I was the only one in the building. It was me and there was a security guy there, you know, that was it. And, but it, for me, it, it helped me to physically segregate the different parts of my life. Right. But then the second thing is going to work and finding other people and kind of working with them and communicating with them and creating bonds and helping to grease the skids of productivity and, and so forth. Right. And so, you know, with respect to the latter, that then becomes sort of a collective action problem, right? Because if you go there and there's nobody there, right? If that's what you're going for, then there's no reason to go there. And so you, that's where you need the coordinating mechanism, right? And now if you're going to have some people working from home, some people working in the office, then it becomes even more important that you have an orchestrator who can align people so that they're there together when they need to be, right? Yeah, which is the grand wild experiment of our time as it comes to the future of work. I was down at a big corporate office today picking something up, a big like CPG company here in Toronto. I was there at noon and there was like 20 people from the company coming back with like piles of pizzas and bags of food. It was like everybody have lunch day Wednesdays, you know, everyone in the office on Wednesdays because that's the day we all collaborate. So like bring your best ideas. But what if you have a really good idea on a Friday and no one's there, right? I have friends who went back to offices only to go sit in a room and do a Zoom call with someone on a different floor because the third person was also on a Zoom call and couldn't figure out how to like do it together. And so, you know, it's that balance in an ideal world, right? Like you could be there and I could be next to you in the conference room and Greg, you can be up on the screen and Susie's on the conference call with us and, you know, Jagmeet's you know, coming in on his metaverse set and like, it all happens on the Thursday because that's when it works. But like reality again is takes place in the analog world where it's like, well, Jagmeet's sick, you know, his kid got the flu. He can't come in today. That meeting room's booked. The software is not working out. And so it's very hard. And I think everybody is trying to have kind of the best of all worlds. You know, I think there's a reason why it didn't happen like this previously, like this remote work in the way that people have been doing it, remote knowledge work, you know, through virtual platforms. Like I had a friend who worked for Dell computers and he was working remotely for 10 years, 15 years ago, right? It's technologically been capable, but there's reasons why it, it hasn't always worked and people keep going back and forth to it. And so that notion of the right balance, that notion of like using the time together for the best possible thing, it's great in theory and reality just, again, has its own agenda. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how sometimes people will say that, you know, productivity goes up when people are working from home. You're an economist. You know the productivity paradox. Yeah. I mean, there's a bit of a measurement issue there. I was giving a talk yesterday about workplace politics and toxicity. And the, and the question was, if you have remote work, does this make it easier or harder for you to kind of survive on the merits? Or does this make it easier or harder for you to survive based on politics? And, and it made me think about, you know, because I your book was fresh in my mind about how serendipity obviously goes away when you move to remote because you don't just schedule a random meeting with a random person, right? You know, you, you only schedule meetings with people you have business with. So in that sense, it, you know, it might make the, the politics more difficult because you're not going to just, Hey, I want to schedule a talk so I can schmooze with you. Right. But in some sense it, it might make it easier. I mean, you could ask people, but no one's going to say yes. Right. 
hey, let's do a catch up. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so it's unclear what the impact is on organizational politics. We know it's going to impair kind of organizational creativity and innovation and collaboration and so forth. But, you know, the serendipity pops up in other places. You mentioned just going to the store and running into people. Do you think that the lack of that interaction, I mean, clearly it leads to unhappiness. It leads to loneliness. Do you think it also makes people less empathetic and less human? I mean, when you look at interactions on the internet and you talk about this, right? Even your, your deli chat, right? Your Facebook group just devolved into this horrible hate fest. Why is that? What are their worst selves come out when they're interacting in a digital way, right? As opposed to a face-to-face way. Good question. I mean, on social media, it's incentivized to generate the greatest emotional reaction. And the greatest emotional reaction tends to be anger. And it rewards it through algorithm to do that. The research on that's fairly well established. But I think the thing that we all think about is like, you're texting with a friend, like, cool, or something, or, you know, okay. Or why didn't they get back to you? And you're like, what is the deal with Greg? The nerve of that guy. I don't know what it is, you know, and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. I was, I was busy with the thing. You're like, oh, okay. I totally misconstrued it. Why? Because I, online, in digital, information is capital I. It's anything that can be encoded in the language of ones and zeros and transferred across whatever network you're using, right? Text, video, picture, sound, some combination thereof. But that's it. There's no body language. There's no subtle signals. There's no way the way you stand when I see in the morning and walk by you in the, you know, the Berkeley Common or whatever. There's no hey, there's no like moments of serendipity. And all those things are actually the most important information we have in the world. It's how the world works, right? It's why we still fly diplomats around the world to like have these conversations. It's the subtlety that comes as a result of tens of thousands of years of human evolution in mutual communication that even without shared languages, we still have some sort of understanding of. And we discount that in many ways as the sort of inefficiency of our meaty bodies. But really, it's like our greatest strength. And when you talk about empathy and you talk about understanding and communication, like so much of that is physical. So much of that is based upon being in the same space, having shared experiences with people like students, like coworkers like people in a medical setting, for example, that you can get information across in a digital way, but you're missing out on so much. And I think what I hear about from people who work at companies and other organizations is that it's like, yeah, the job part, the work part, like you can get the thing done. I can do the assignment from your class that you're teaching, but I'm not getting this sort of deeper understanding. I'm not getting a sense of who I am and how I'm relating to people. And then there's all the other sort of unseen opportunities that you're missing out on. You know, I have a neighbor named Craig. He lived a block away from me. He's also a journalist. Ran into him in the street when he was walking his dog, blah, blah, blah. How you doing? We should get lunch. We had lunch. We joked around. He's like, you know, I saw him the next day. That was great. He's like, you know, I have a friend and he's, he needs someone to help him write something. And now I'm in touch with this friend to help him maybe write something. And it could be a, a good business opportunity for me. All because I ran into Craig at the park, right? But there was no scenario where I was like dropping him a line on LinkedIn or being like, hey, did you know, so much of our world is relational. And so when you talk about politics, we think about it in this nasty, 
kind of succession type way. I haven't seen the show, but I've read a lot of people talking about it or whatever it is, right? Like the, the idea of like, oh, it's all, it's all just politics. It's nasty. You work at a, li- a, a very liberal university. I imagine the politics at Berkeley are spectacular. And yet what is politics? It's relationships. It's influence. It's all these things that in this idealistic hypothetical future, we can just do away with and only the best technical solution and the most viable candidate will be sort of the one that's awarded. But even then we know politics will play a role. It's how humans work. It's how we deal and socialize and assess in all sorts of situations. And the idea that we just flatten that and then the technology will just sort of be this great evener is a great, tremendous misnomer, I think. Yeah. I mean, whenever you send somebody an email, right, it's always misconstrued. If you say, hey, you know, I need this report, whatever, people are like, why is this pretty? But if you talk to them on the phone, it's usually much better. But when you call somebody, right, they usually just go straight to voicemail because you have, it's almost like nowadays you have to schedule, right? You know, can I give you a call? And then they're like, well, I don't have room in my calendar and stuff like that. So you have to kind of force people to make themselves available for this non-digital interaction. Yeah. And then when you do, I mean, you have a meeting with someone, you have a lunch with them. It's almost comical how easy it is often to like get things through, right? Yeah. The hard part is getting the meeting now, right? <laughs> Once you have it, it's all good. But yeah, you know, because everybody's dispersed. But a couple of things, you know, we introduced an online MBA just recently here at Berkeley. And there's obviously advantages, right? Because people can take it from all around the world and so forth. But to me, it seems like for every, hour that you take from the classroom and put into digital, you then have to counterbalance it with something that is even more intensely human than a class, right? So, I mean, a class is people are sitting in horseshoe and there's a professor and it's not super interactive, but if you have like group activities and group tasks and group projects and social events and dinners and and parties and so forth, you know, that's even more social. So if you go with I call it like a you know a dumbbell strategy instead of a bullet strategy where you have kind of remote plus like intensely social, then it might average out to be what we get, which is this normal kind of in-person, but not super intense classroom experience. I mean, is that a way to make sure that if we do get the benefits of digital, we don't necessarily give up? too much in order to get those benefits. Well, I think it, it is. It's The key is sort of identifying which parts of our lives, which parts of an experience, let's say an MBA is a really good one, which parts of it make the most sense to use digital technology for, right? So like, let's go back. Calculating, Excel, spreadsheets, like great. Make your spreadsheets, do your stuff. Like nobody's bringing out an abacus in an MBA course. Are there certain modules or sharing work or doing things of collaborative parts of the work that like make more sense to do online because you're building charts, or you're collaborating on parts of a presentation that certainly you can do in that way? Sure. But what is the key to an MBA, right? Is it learning cost benefit analysis? Is it learning financial accounting? Is it learning all these hard skills, the facts and figures and the processes you teach or management theory or whatever? That's a big part of it. But what's the most important part of I have an MBA from Berkeley, I have an MBA from Harvard or the Stanford, you know, it's network, right? It's the people you know. And if the people you know are just little boxes on a screen, good luck getting those people to help you get a job in five or 10 years, right? If the people you know are people you stayed up late at night with putting together a presentation and then went out and had a celebratory drink or dinner afterward, 
the people who sat through the lectures with you, the people who you walked to school with and had conversations with and came up with an idea that turned into a business. Great. Again, it's allowing the space for the natural way that humans behave to happen and without getting in the way of it. While I think again, taking advantage of the things that technology can do better, right? Or more efficiently, or that we can't do it. You know, it's hard to create a forecasting spreadsheet of price things on paper without a calculator or a computer, right? It's hard to sort of do those things, but you're establishing yourself in that world, right? And, and again, I think it's the biggest mistake that we got with education. And I think it's the big mistake when people still talk about the future of learning as being digital. And like, I hear once in a while, I'm just like, no, hold on, let me tell you what. And this is comes from Larry Cuban, a gentleman across the Bay at Stanford who studied sort of history of ed tech and, and teaches it and is a wonderful man. And I've talked to him for a couple of books. And he said, education isn't information. Information is facts, figures, theories, I, you know, these sort of ideas, but education is about relationships and the information wraps itself around that. And that's the world. Nothing happens in a silo, right? And there was this idea that I think we can separate ourselves from everything out beyond and like we could do it all in here in the screen. And it's true. You can, you could like, Greg, you could sit in this room in your house and you could never leave. You could exercise on your screen and get entertained and talk to people from all over the world to talk to other professors and write your papers and do your research. You know, you're an economist. You don't need to be out in the field, right? And like, I guarantee that you would live a lesser life and the impact that you would have in this world would be lesser because you're missing out on the information that's beyond that, those walls and the experience of the world, which is beyond those walls. It's taking stock, I guess, like this is something that I have, a, I have a good friend, Gregory Kaplan is an economist. He's at UFC, but he's not like a Milton Friedman maniac, Australian, good, good guy. You know, and we've talked about it a lot. He's like, I go out and I do what he calls qualitative research, which is like, I'm interviewing people and I'm talking to them. I'm seeing scenes and I'm doing things, whatever. And he does the quantitative, like looks at, you know, government data and, and statistics and sort of extrapolates. And you need both. You know, when you have too much of sort of the anecdotal, you're like, well, I went to the symphony and I didn't see a bunch of people. So the symphonies are all dying. And on the other hand, you have just the raw data, which is like spending on music is, is X and spending on other experiences is Y, therefore, da, 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 da. And the world is both, right? The world is everything. And I think we just, we're sort of losing sight of that. And I think we still continually have the risk of losing sight of it because we can get everything in one place, because the information is so much easier and requires so much less effort in this way. But the value of that, that greater experience, the analog experience, the sort of more human experience isn't diminished simply because you don't have to step outside yeah, I mean, you can take, I think you could take a portfolio approach, right? So in other words, the more stuff we do online, that means the more trips to Napa we need to make sure our students do together, right? To counterbalance that. I mean, I certainly, during, during the pandemic, the more I, I had to do all my online classes. So I had to counterbalance that by having more dinner parties. So I actually had more dinner parties during the pandemic than I did before and, and after. Of course, I had to find some brave souls, you know, and stay within the, you can't have more than 12 people in your house, according to the city of Berkeley. But I needed that to, to counterbalance all of this digital interaction to keep the kind of average more or less constant. Yeah. And I think that's it. You know, for over-indexing in one way that we're going to need that balance, right? So in the coming five years, you're going to see all sorts of corporate and institutional over-indexing on AI-based 
solutions and technology. And there are going to be some unforeseen consequences and negative results. And I'm not talking about like all jobs gone and Terminator's taking over. I'm just talking about like, oh, this experience is now lesser because it's sort of gone too far in this direction, right? Like, oh, you know, this professor is grading all their papers based on AI and therefore they're missing out on a lot. And so you need to constantly strive for that balance because the balance is all we have, right? There's this notion, again, this sort of messianic prophetic notion that comes out of Silicon Valley. And I don't mean the place, you know, 30 miles Southwest to you. I mean, not just the business, but the sort of ideology around it, which is like, when we reach this exalted state of X, then humanity will live in some sort of idealized harmony. And it's an ism like communism or any other sort of messianic, you know, ism where it's like, there is a destiny, there is a goal, and we just need to get to that. And once we do that, then we're good. Then we're happy. But what we have around us in everyday life, the world we live in, the earth that we must exist on and coexist on with all the other species and, and the climate and so forth, the relationships we have, the friends, the families, the colleagues, the coworkers, the neighbors, our bodies, like this is the destiny. This is the thing, what we have right now. And so what brings that to its best state? And it's going to be different for everyone right? Some people are going to be happy sitting in their houses, looking at a screen, spinning their legs to a spin instructor in New York. And other people are going to be happier getting out on their bike and going to the hills of Marin County and going mountain biking. And some people are going to do one on the day when it rains and the other one on the days when it's sunny. And that's okay. It's allowing and sort of accepting that the plurality of the human experience is kind of the secret sauce of it. Now, I think that the chapters that I, I found most enjoyable in your book were about food and, and shopping, right? Because these are being transformed by these apps and, and large companies. But th there's two stories there. I mean, one is about scale and one is about kind of bricks and mortars versus digital. And, and it seems like they're not necessarily, those stories are evolving separately. And, and, and I'm thinking in terms of, you know, look at Warby Parker, right? So Warby Parker started putting all of these bricks and mortar eyeglass stores out of business. And then they realized, well, we can get into bricks and mortar. And when they got into bricks and mortar, they're actually doing extremely well in bricks and mortar. Not only that, but they have like spurned a ecosystem of Warby Parker clones. So in the neighborhood where my kid's school is here in downtown Toronto, there was a Warby Parker that opened. And in a two-year span, it became what I called the optical district. Whereas like there's a Warby Parker, there's an Ollie Quinn, there's like a Harlow Hudson, like two names of any four-year-olds in a preschool around here, like Harley Hudson, Oliver Quinn, you know, oh, Nelson Bailey, like take two kids, like the names of millennials children, combine them together with nice design and attractive pricing. And you're like, oh, okay, great. Sorry. That's my rant for that. But it's, the same thing. It's like this, this notion of Warby Parker is going to put all these glasses stores out of business. Warby Parker is brilliant for going and opening stores. And now like, okay, now it's just like more glasses. Like somehow people are wearing even more glasses than before. But what, what makes Warby Parker successful in the bricks and mortar world is that, you know, they've got this technology, which they developed, right, for the online. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to 
eliminate bricks and mortar, but we are going to have, I mean, the most successful bricks and mortar ones are the ones that know how to leverage this tech. I think about open table and how open I used to work in restaurants when I was younger, like keeping track of reservations and you know, all this stuff. I mean, this was a nightmare. And, you know, whether you're a small dentist or a small business person of any kind, right, just had enormous frictions in dealing with your suppliers and customers and so forth. And it seems like the availability of these tech tools is actually making it easier to kind of run a small business, in particular, kind of a small bricks and mortar business. Yeah, I mean, that's the promise, right? The promise of technology and the hope of it. And the thing that we like is this notion of like, this is a supportive tool that will allow you to create something or connect with something or do some sort of thing in a better way, right? That's that productivity game. You can do your own podcast now. And you just have to click on this link on Riverside versus like, Greg, you better set up a radio station. How big of an antenna could your backyard hold? That's the advantage, right? The advantage of like my barber today, I booked a haircut with her. I did it through Squire, the online haircut booking platform. And that's the great advantage of it, right? And I think you see that in, in the sort of world of commerce with things like OpenTable, for example, or other sort of technologies that allow for like online ordering or whatever, where it gets troublesome. And I think this is something that is more about the business model than the technology. It's more about the sort of VC funded default way that the technology business has operated for the past two decades is the idea of like, no, 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 no. It's not enough to just provide a service to someone. You must own the category. You must be the one player, which works if you're building an operating system where you need a default standard in order for everything to speak the same language or a hardware standard of, you know, USB, although they keep fucking that up every couple of years. And it's like, guys, universal. The U is in there. Please don't change it. Oh, God, I got to buy new stuff. But it's it's that notion of that that dominance, right? That there has to be just one. And so what what did you see in the world of commerce? You see Amazon going to be like, we're going to be the place that sells all sorts of stuff. And by the way, if there's a product that's doing really well on our site, we're going to copy it, make it, sell it for three cents cheaper, put it up higher in our algorithm and put the other things out of business. Or Uber Eats and DoorDash and all the other sort of delivery things where it's like, oh, great, there's a taco restaurant that's doing really well in Berkeley and they serve birria tacos. Well, we're going to make a birria taco out of the back of some food truck and have it to delivery and we're going to put it higher in the algorithm. And we're going to steal the menu. We're actually going to poach the chef from the other one because we have access to all the data, right? And we're going to win and crush the other guys. And for the most part, it hasn't worked. All those ghost kitchen things have sort of fallen flat. There's a value in brands. People value things other than the sort of hyper-efficiency of everything. And I think... That world of commerce is really interesting because, you know, you go back to the first sector that Amazon dominated, books, right? And Amazon is the biggest single bookseller anywhere, but they don't own 80 or 90 or 100% of the market or even 50% of the market. And that's because people like bookstores. Independent bookstores have been growing and expanding for a dozen years and they continue to. And you saw that throughout the pandemic and the idea of like, oh, restaurants are done, independent restaurants are over. It's only going to be big chains or whatever. It's not true because again, our tastes are different. Sometimes you want the most convenient, quickest thing. And sometimes you want something that's going to be slower. You want that, you know, the resurgence of farmer's markets is this incredible story, right? I think it's gone up. I can't remember what the percentage was, but huge multiples over the past 30 years. Thank you very much, Berkeley, California. Bravo, Alice. You did well. and. 
I went to the farmer's market here last night, spent God knows how much for like three cabbages and whatever other sad spring produce cans for here in Canada. But it was wonderful. And I had gone to a big supermarket the day before and I had ordered something online the day before. And there are different types of value. There are different types of experiences. We don't just want one monolithic thing. I think there's, again, that false assumption of like, well, we looked at the data and 60% of people prefer this. Therefore, 60 equals 100 because it's the majority, right? And it's simply not true. You look at books. It's the same thing. My first book, Save the Deli, which you mentioned before, came out in 2009. That was, I think, a year or two after they had introduced the Kindle. And so I was like, well, I'm screwed. Just finished my first book. I'm like a band and like the MP3 just came out. Napster just came out. I'm done. This is it. Better find another line of work. And book sales, paper books have held up 10 to 1. Like the numbers really haven't changed in over a decade. It's not like they're growing every year because people prefer to read in print. But some people love to read in ebooks and some people love to listen to audiobooks. And there's always going to be different segments of the market. Some people are going to buy their books online and some people are going to go to their local bookstore and some people are going to the library. And it's like publishing is a healthy business because that all exists, that balance. It comes back to balance again. And from moving away from these assumptions that there is going to be one winner, one dominant thing, it's that diversity of the human experience that is the sort of core of the analog thing. Yeah. And I think a big part of the reason why book sales have gone up is because they are cheaper to buy and procure and easier to access part because of Amazon. But just to, you know, kind of wrap up on this idea of complementarity, you know, when I created this podcast for probably about 20 years, I wanted to do something like this, but my vision of it was to have book authors come to campus and we would have a room and audience and would be up there on the stage and we'd have a nice conversation. And then afterwards there'd be some, some cocktails and some canapes and maybe all go out to dinner afterwards. That was the idea. And I still think that's a way, 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 way better idea. But <laughs> the reason why it never happened is because it's expensive. And because, I mean, at Berkeley, you can't even book a room more than a couple of days ahead of time, right, to do something like this. And, and so when the pandemic hit, it was like, well, okay, I can do this whole thing remotely. Now, I don't think it's a good substitute. I think it's clearly not the ideal, but it can't let the perfect get in the way of the good to some degree. And I think that out of this, Presumably, if people listen to this and they say, oh, wow, David, that, that guy's an interesting guy. Let's get him to come and speak to our you know, group of people. He can do a dog and pony for our folks in the flesh. And I think that that's ultimately, you know, as we do more and more digital, it, it fuels a demand for more, I think, personal connections. It's that peak experience, right? The peak experience is, is the analog one. Unless it's an inherently digital experience, unless it's like, playing Nintendo. But even then, I went to the opening day of the Super Mario Brothers movie with my kids, and it was packed with kids and families and costumes and whatever. And they were there to watch a digital product, a movie, an animated movie, but they were there in person, eating their popcorn, screaming, whatever. Like, that was it. The peak experience is still the real one. And I think that's the same for school, and I think that's the same for culture and entertainment and conversations like this, or conversations with a friend. I can catch up with my friend, Larry, who lives in Berkeley. We chat a couple times a year. We text back and forth or whatever, but like compared to being there and going out and having drinks and going to get coffee and eating with him and going for a walk and spending time, like nothing compares to that. And I think that's it. 
we have things between the everything and the nothing, right? If your option is no MBA or virtual MBA, maybe the virtual one is not a bad option. But if you have an option between virtual and real, which experience is going to be the ultimate experience in terms of what you're going to get out of it? Cost, availability, timing, geography, those things are going to get in the way. Those are realities, right? But is the most convenient, cheapest option always the best? I think that's the thing we have to wrap our head around. And that you talked also about kind of entertainment and obviously doing improv is a little tough, but I've become a big consumer of the Met in HD and the National Theater Live, right? And so these seem to be interesting hybrids because when you go to see National Theater Live in a movie theater, okay, you're not watching it at home on your screen. You're in a theater with a whole bunch of other people. And then when you're watching it, they're performing in front of another group of people right in London. So it's, it's virtual, it's digital, but you know, you have people in the room and I always find it amazing when at the end of the play or at the end of the opera, all the people in the movie theater start clapping. <laughs> and it's like, well, like, who are you? They can't hear you. Right? Doesn't matter. You're clapping for each other. Exactly. And so it's not ideal. I mean, I'd much rather be at the Met, but that requires, requires flying to New York and spending 350 bucks. And now has it increased? Has it, has it changed your desire for like, have you planned a trip? Have you thought about it? Oh yeah, it does. But I think where the detrimental thing is that now I'll consume less local theater because the quality of the, the performances are just, it's so, so much different. Right. So I'll, I'll still go to local theater, but if I have to, it's a tougher choice between well, the Met and Renee Fleming on the big screen versus my local singer. And I'll still do both. Your local opera. Yeah, it's, I'll still do both. And probably my consumption of opera as a whole has gone up, but there is this substitution that happens to some degree, right? So it's great for the folks who are performing in the Met. Maybe it's not so great for people at local. I mean, it, it sounds like the San Francisco classical art scene could, could use some reinvigoration, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, again, you're getting everything except all the other stuff that you're not getting from being there, right? And you can have both. That's the beauty is like on Tuesday, you can go to the, see the Met in the movie theater. And on Wednesday, you can go to the, your local opera house or your, the symphony and get the full experience of seeing things in person. And on Thursday, you can go to a rock show, go see the dead play in Mountain View or whoever's left. Yeah, got the Greek theater right down the street. Well, look, this is fantastic. David, the book is called Future is Analog, but don't forget, the predecessor, Revenge is the Analog. We didn't even talk about Soul of an Entrepreneur. Perhaps we can discuss that another day. And of course, Saving the Deli. So, you know, if you're in the Bay Area, let's go grab a pastrami sandwich. I mean, I'm, I'm, you sent me the invite for that talk. You had me at drinks and canapes. All right. Awesome. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.